folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Season 2, Episode 8. As you may have gathered from listening to the last episode at the end, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do this week, and was tossing back and forth between doing something with a Buddhist text or jumping into questions of post-humanism and the cyborg. I've decided to do the former, for the very simple reason that much of my approach to the figure of the cyborg actually dovetails quite well with Buddhism, and therefore a look at one of the central texts in Buddhism, the Diamond Sutra, might actually serve as useful background for some of the stuff I'd like to do with with post-humanism and the figure of the cyborg. So, that's what I'm going to do. The sequence on the Diamond Sutra will probably take two or three episodes, and then we'll just take it from there. What I think I'll do today, and I'll try to keep it relatively short, is to just give you a bit of background on Buddhism itself, as I have to assume that for most of you it's a relatively unfamiliar worldview. Then, in a couple or a few episodes following that, dive into the Diamond Sutra and explore some of its central ideas. It's a fascinating text, and one, quite frankly, that I've found quite useful in my life, and one that offers some genuine challenges to what you might consider a general or standard Western assumption of what a human being or a human person actually is. And these are challenges that I want to have foregrounded before getting into questions revolving around the post-human. So we're playing a long game now, and, and I hope you enjoy it. As for Buddhism itself, its origins go back to about the 5th century BCE and its founder figure Siddhartha Gautama the son of a wealthy member of the Kshatriya class, or the Kshatriya caste, the warrior and administrative caste, in Hindu society, specifically in his case in the area of Nepal, in the foothills of the Himalaya mountains. His father, according to the legendary history, was told that he would grow up to become what's called a renouncer, someone who renounces the ways of the world, the ways of worldly engagement, which of course are central to, or were central to, his family's function. So his father decided that he would surround young Siddhartha with all of the pleasures of life and never let him see anything unpleasant that might inspire him to take that path of renunciation. So even when he was traveling, for example, he was made to travel in windowless carriages so that he couldn't see the world outside. He only went from one relatively protected place to another relatively protected place and lived only in the world of what we would now call the 1% with no idea of the vast majority of the rest of human beings and the reality of human suffering. Well, one day he did manage to look out of his carriage, and this actually happened three times because three is an important mythical number, and the various things that he saw when he looked out were Hunger, that is, he saw a starving beggar. Disease, he saw a leper. And death, he saw a corpse. These set off a train of thought in young Siddhartha's head that led to him becoming a renunciate. This did not make father happy, but Siddhartha then undertook a spiritual quest for enlightenment. What he found, though, was that the path of an ascetic was not leading him to enlightenment, and what he hit upon instead was something called the middle way. 
that is, a life of neither indulgent luxury nor bodily mortification. Siddhartha's enlightenment famously culminated in a 49-day meditation session under a Bodhi tree on top of a hill in a pattern that will maybe look familiar to some of you from what many scholars of religion and mythology believe to be a later manifestation of the same motif. That is, he had a 40-plus day meditation in isolation, complete isolation from all, all human engagement in the wilderness, at the end of which he was accosted by Mara, the Lord of Illusion, a demonic figure set on disrupting him. And Mara approached him with three temptations. The first temptation was his daughters, that is the temptations of the flesh, which he was able to successfully ignore. The second temptation was a little scarier. It was an army of monsters, which again, he was able to simply dismiss as unreal. And the third temptation was kind of a weird one. Uh, Mara challenged his authority, asked him by what authority he was seeking enlightenment, by what authority he was there, claiming that he himself is the one who actually had power over the world. At which point, the Buddha reached forth his hand and touched the earth, and the earth proclaimed, I bear witness to him. At which point, Mara vanishes in a poof of irrelevance, and the Buddha's enlightenment is either complete or completely illustrated, depending on the version of the story you read. That is, whether the temptation happens just before or just after his enlightenment is a matter of some interpretation. In any case, the basic content of Siddhartha's enlightenment is the Four Noble Truths, and following on that, the Eightfold Path. These are roughly as follow. The first noble truth is that life is suffering, specifically suffering arising from conditioned existence. What this means is that while well, the life is suffering part is pretty straightforward, conditioned existence means that everything we experience, including ourselves, is contingent on something else. And this inescapable contingency is itself a cause of suffering. The reason for this is the second noble truth, that the cause of suffering is desire. And desire can be understood here in a couple of different ways. One, wanting things that we don't have, that is, things on which our happiness as we understand it, is dependent, is contingent, or anxiety over losing things we do have, and again, for the same reasons. And suffering, of course, doesn't need to be understood here as a physical state. It is a psychological or spiritual state arising from unease or discomfort, from our dependency on a, a sort of perennially contingent existence. It follows then that, and this is the third noble truth, that suffering can be eliminated by eliminating desire. This is logical. If desire causes suffering and you can eliminate the desire, you have eliminated the cause of suffering. Therefore, no suffering. Not terribly complicated, really. But then we come to the how. How do you eliminate suffering? And this is the fourth noble truth. Suffering can be eliminated by pursuing the Eightfold Path. As for the Eightfold Path, it is roughly this. 
The first step is called right understanding or right view. And this is simply seeing and recognizing the, the conditionality or the contingency of all things, including yourself. The second step is right attitude or right emotion. That is looking at things through this understanding rather than through an understanding that places yourself or your ego at the center of things. The third step is called right speech. This is pretty straightforward. Right speech is always truthful and non-harmful. That is, it is both truthful and compassionate. The fourth step is called right action. And this is basically action that is not in any way exploitative of other people. That is, action that will not, to the best of your ability, cause suffering in others. The fifth is right livelihood. This is very similar to right action. The notion here is that whatever you do for a living, whatever you do to keep yourself breathing for the time that you're lucky enough to have, is done in a compassionate and non-exploitative manner. That is, you should never make your living in such a way as to place others in conditions of suffering or to cause or compound the suffering of others. The sixth step is right effort. That is, you should always act with sincerity and with complete attention on what you're doing. That is, don't half-ass things. Multitasking is the enemy of right effort. And demonstrably, it does lead to inferior outcomes. The seventh step is right mindfulness. That is, always remaining aware of your state of conditionality or contingency. And in order to maintain this right mindfulness, the eighth step is right concentration, that is meditation or contemplation or complete focus on your contingency or on the contingency of all things, largely but not exclusively, to keep your own ego in check, to keep you from thinking of yourself as the focal point or the center, or in any way really more relevant than anyone else or anything else to the environment through which you move. Because, of course, it's in the placing ourselves above others that we tend to conduct ourselves in ways that contribute to their suffering. Those, of course, were not complete definitions or complete descriptions of the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path, but they'll do for our purposes, as long as we also bear in mind that the Eightfold Path is often represented as a wheel with eight spokes. That is, this is not a path you take once but rather something that is maintained as a matter of personal discipline throughout your life. For now, what I think we should do is move on to a few other technical terms, which touch specifically upon human nature. And I should maybe say something about that. This talk isn't going to address the question of technology, at least not directly, but Buddhism does make some interesting claims and observations about human nature that if I didn't think were relevant, I wouldn't be drawing in. So, let's go back to the initial context of Buddhism. As I mentioned about Siddhartha, he was a Kshatriya, a member of one of the four castes of Hindu society. Buddhism arises out of Hinduism. Actually, around the time that Buddhism arises, there's a lot of interesting things going on in Hinduism. A lot of challenges to the Vedic conventions, that is the conventions arising out of the Vedic texts, which incidentally are the oldest texts in the world to still be a part of a living religion. 
at least the Rig Veda, the oldest of the four is. But Hinduism at this time was also reevaluating itself and making some of its most important philosophic advances. You can find many of these in a body of literature called the Upanishads, and also, of course, most famously in the Bhagavad Gita, which I recommend that everybody read at some point in their lives. I bring this up simply to point out that Hinduism and Buddhism have a lot of common ground and a certain amount of common vocabulary, though of course there are important differences in how they handle the vocabulary. For now, there are three particular terms that I'd like to address, samsara, nirvana, and dharma. Samsara is simply the wheel of rebirth, or if you prefer, the wheel of time. The notion behind this is that we do not live just one life, but are in fact reborn, time and again actually, in varying states depending on the karma that we've accumulated in one particular life, and I probably should have introduced karma as another technical term. Karma is simply the consequences of one's actions and one's understanding or enlightenment, and it is not personal. That is to say, it's not under the personal direction of any conscious entity. The notion of samsara also places us in a different thought world than we are when we look at the best-known Western ideologies. Time, in the thought worlds I'm referring to right now, is not linear, it's circular. That is, I guess very much as in Lucretius, there is no beginning to the cosmos. It has simply always been. There are in Hindu thought cycles of arising and destruction. These are reflected in some schools of Buddhism as well. But there is no beginning. There is no first cause. So our existence then can be understood as a perpetual ride, I suppose, on an eternal Ferris wheel where we keep going around and around and around, but on each go around, we occupy a different seat. Our rebirth or our rebirths, rather, may place us in the forms of humans, of animals, or of gods. And this may sound surprising to you, but the most fortuitous rebirth is not the rebirth as a god, but the rebirth as a human being. That is, it is better to be a human than to be a god, because it is in your human form that you are likely to learn the most. This is the perspective that gives you the greatest insight into both the cosmos, and your nature relative to it. Because, of course, the objective, and this is true in both Hinduism and Buddhism, is not to have a good rebirth, but to get the fuck off the ride and enter a state that is known as nirvana. I'm giving these terms, by the way, in Sanskrit. They also have cognates, of course, in Pali, which is the language of the oldest Buddhist scriptures. Sanskrit is the literary language, the classical language of Hinduism, and also the language in which many of the Mahayana Buddhist scriptures are written. Nirvana in Pali is Nibbana. Samsara is, I believe, the same in both languages, and Dharma in Pali is Dhamma. But what's Nirvana if it's getting you off of the ride of rebirth? It sounds an awful lot like nihilism, and I think it's often misinterpreted that way as a yearning simply towards non-existence by commentators and often by detractors in the West. The word refers to 
snuffing out, as in the snuffing out of a candle flame, so it's easy to see where that misunderstanding would come from. But, in fact, what it seems to refer to is not a snuffing out of one's very existence, but rather a snuffing out of ego consciousness. In that sense, not an elimination, but rather a transcendence of one's position on the wheel. Hold that thought for now. I'll get back to it shortly. First, though, I should probably say a few words about Dharma, which is, between Hinduism and Buddhism, the word that undergoes, I think, the greatest change. In its original meaning, it refers to your proper place on the wheel. This is relevant to both your caste and to you as an individual. That is, every caste has a particular dharma, a particular set of duties and obligations that are appropriate to it. But within that, every individual also has their own particular place, their own obligations, their own duties, that can be done either well or poorly. And I've mentioned that word duty a couple of times. The most common translation of dharma into English is duty. I think that translation falls really far short, but it does capture at least part of what the word means. Another common translation is religion, and religion in the ritualistic and social sense, the sense of knowing the proper rites to perform. Put those two together, and you're not too far off of what dharma actually means to, uh, to a Hindu. There is this wonderful line in the Bhagavad Gita, better one's own dharma done poorly than someone else's dharma done well. That is, your dharma is unique to you. And there is one thing that you ought to be doing, one thing to which you are best suited, and that you will learn the most, you will understand the most during this time around on the wheel. By doing that, either well or poorly, than you will from doing anything else, even if you do that other thing better. An analogy that I sometimes draw, and this may sound a little egocentric, I hope not, it's just that mine is the easiest life from which I can draw examples. I remember teaching the Gita a few years ago and saying to my students while explaining Dharma, particularly this notion of one's individual Dharma, that if I look at my life from the position of Vedantic Hinduism, then I can understand that by doing what I actually do for a living, I am doing my dharma. I'm doing the thing to which I genuinely believe myself to be best suited, and I'm therefore at exactly the right place, even if it may have been pragmatically to my advantage to have done something else, because I can think of nothing that more closely corresponds with those things that I believe I have to offer than doing this thing that I'm doing right now. Now, this is not to say that I'm trying to hold myself up as an exemplar of a teacher. I'm not. I'm aware of my many weaknesses in that field. But this is, I think, one way of looking at the notion of Dharma at the level of an individual life, at least from a Hindu point of view. Now, Dharma changes when you move into Buddhism. And even within Buddhism, it doesn't have a single unified meaning. So what I think I'm going to do now is talk about some of the divisions within Buddhism and then focus on the meaning of Dharma as it applies to the Diamond Sutra, which is the thing toward which this talk is ultimately building. The oldest school of Buddhism, and this dates right back to about the 5th century BCE, is the Theravada school, or the school of the elder monks. 
This is the school of Buddhism practiced in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia, excluding Vietnam. The purpose of this particular school is the attainment of nirvana by the practitioner. It's generally very conservative or austere in its outlook, involving strict and strictly regulated monastic disciplines. It's also sometimes referred to as the Hinayana school or school of the little vehicle by Mahayana Buddhists, to whom I'll get in just a moment. If you're interested in exploring a fairly easily accessible piece of writing from the Theravada school, what you want to read is the Dhammapada, which is not a whole lot longer than the Diamond Sutra. You can read it in an afternoon. Take a lot longer than that to understand it, but you can read it in an afternoon. This, however, is not the school of Buddhism with which I'm concerned at the moment. The other major school of Buddhism is the Mahayana school, the school of the greater vehicle, which seems to date back to about the first century CE. Mahayana Buddhism, which itself contains many different schools, is that practiced in China, Korea, Japan, Vietnam, and in a different aspect, Tibet and Mongolia. When I say a different aspect, what I mean is that within Mahayana, there is another split between Mahayana proper and Vajrayana Buddhism. This is what we call Tibetan Buddhism. And where Mahayana means great vehicle, Vajrayana means thunderbolt vehicle. Sometimes also it's given as diamond vehicle and is concerned with the practice of Buddhist values in day-to-day life. It also has a number of esoteric practices which, with which I'm not at all familiar. I've never read any of the texts of Vajrayana Buddhism, so I'm not qualified to comment on it intelligently. To get back to Mahayana Buddhism, though, the Diamond Sutra is one of the most important texts in that tradition, which broadly speaking can be understood as the northern strand of Buddhism, because of course there is very little Buddhism still practiced in India. The schools of Buddhism best known to the Western world belong to the Mahayana tradition, broadly speaking. Most conspicuously, I suppose, the tradition known as Dhyana in Sanskrit, Chan in Chinese, and Zen in Japanese. And in Mahayana Buddhism, broadly speaking, the goal is actually quite different from the goal in Theravada. The ideal figure in Mahayana Buddhism is not necessarily a Buddha, that is an enlightened person, but a Bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is a person who has reached the point of enlightenment, reached the point of being able to enter nirvana, but remains active in the world for the purpose of helping other people also attain enlightenment. This is why it's called the greater vehicle, the Mahayana, because it's aimed not at the individual enlightenment, but at the enlightenment of other people, broadly speaking. And this is why Mahayana Buddhists adopt the slightly derogatory term Hinayana, lesser vehicle, for the Theravada tradition. It's a suggestion that Theravada Buddhism is innately selfish, whereas Mahayana Buddhism is positioning itself as being innately selfless, or rather altruistic if you prefer. And from here on in, any of the comments I make about Buddhism will be contained to the Mahayana tradition, as this is really the only one that I've explored in any great depth. 
And even saying that much, I am not about to position myself as an expert. What I should do, though, is address a few technical terms that pertain to particularly a reading of the Diamond Sutra. One is the use of Dharma in the Mahayana tradition. Its particular meaning here is a little difficult to actually wrap your mind around. You'll often see in writings in this tradition the notion of various things, be they lives, be they ideas, be they particular objects or even specific teachings as dharmas themselves. And here, a dharma is best understood as a phenomenon arising from the contingencies that are necessarily involved in being on the wheel of samsara. And here now, finally, I think I need to get into just three more technical terms that are central to Mahayana Buddhism generally and the Diamond Sutra specifically, and then just shut the hell up until my next talk when we get into the sutra itself. These ideas are, and I'll give the terms in both Sanskrit and Pali, anatman or anatta, meaning no self, sunyata or sunata, meaning the emptiness of phenomena, and pratyasamupada or patikasamupada, meaning dependent co-arising. And by the way, I'm not giving the technical terms in these other languages just to be pretentious. I genuinely believe that some of you may be curious about pursuing these, and you may as well actually have the language with which to do so. We'll start with anatman or no-self. This is basically the notion that the construction of an image of oneself as a discrete being, as what we might call an ego, is an illusion that the self, as that constructed thing, with knowable boundaries, or at least with boundaries that exist, is an illusion arising from a particular perspective in consciousness, and from, I think, what is inevitably the starting place of measuring all things against ourselves, against our own perspectives. Because, of course, these are the perspectives to which we naturally have recourse, aren't they? So here, and this particularly pertains to some of our discourse on human nature moving forward into the figure of the cyborg and questions of, of the post-human. We have a challenge to the notion of a discrete or integral self. In Mahayana Buddhism, that discrete or integral self, that essential you, doesn't exist. It's a narrative construction, or at least it can be understood as a narrative construction useful in some ways, but unreal and perhaps even dangerous if taken to be real. Dangerous particularly because in taking the self, the integral self, to be real, we're positioning ourselves within the world of phenomena in such a way as to always be prey to desires, as to always be evaluating things against that image of ourselves that we carry in our heads. And as long as that image is maintained, suffering is, from this point of view, inevitable. And also, maybe even more importantly, our understanding of the cosmos itself will always be skewed. That is, from the Mahayana Buddhist point of view, if you maintain an illusion that you yourself are a discrete being, you can only ever misunderstand both 
the things and people around you and the environment through which you move and from which you actually arise. And this brings us around quite naturally to sunyata or the emptiness of phenomena. This is specifically the notion that any categorical label that we construct in our heads for discursive purposes, for the purposes of understanding or even perceiving, is necessarily unreal and that the category itself is necessarily empty. That is, that the thing itself, anything we look at, anything we think we look at or think we see, is not what we might call an ontological property of the world, but rather an apparent phenomenon arising from our epistemological mechanisms. Be they consciously adopted, such as courses of study, or even our habit, inevitable in language, of assigning meanings to sounds, where those meanings include some things, but exclude the vast majority of other things. So here we have this tension between the necessity of using those categories in order to communicate anything at all, and the essential unreality of all of the categories that we use for both communication and thought. So the notion of sunyata is geared at recognizing that absolutely all of our categories of thought, whether referring to things internal or things external, are unreal, are constructed, are imaginary, and this includes, of course, the distinction itself between internal and external, or in other words, self and other. And this brings us around to our final term for the day, pratyasamapada, or dependent co-arising, which incidentally is, I think, very important to the conception of human nature going forward into the figure of the cyborg or the figure of the post-human. So what this basically means is, and this follows naturally, I think inevitably, from the notions of no self and the emptiness of phenomena, is that all things are interdependent. That is, there is no thing that exists in and of itself. One way to look at this is in terms of relationships, how we actually understand each other. That is, we understand each other by comparing ourselves to things outside of ourselves. I'm a teacher by virtue of having students. I'm a father by virtue of having a child, that kind of thing. But there's also beyond that a notion that the stuff that makes us up is also consistent. That is, we're all made of the same stuff and not just as people, but as other sentient beings or non-sentient beings or rocks and water. That is, we are all always utterly dependent on the environment from which we arise. And our being is therefore always completely conditioned by the circumstances from which or rather within which we arise and relate to each other. And there is no position from which, absent that mutual dependence, we can actually say something like, I am. And here, bit of a linguistic digression if that's okay, I'm, I'm often struck by the, uh, the Sanskrit word for illusion, which is maya. And the etymology of maya is actually not known. One possibility that I've come across is that it's based on the word ma, which means to measure. But I noticed a few years ago that it was also 
exactly the same word as we have in the instrumental case for the word aham, which translates into I am in the nominative, and is precisely cognate with ego in Latin, meaning I am, or the statement I am in English. The instrumental case is the case that indicates agency where the agent is not the grammatical subject. We don't have that case in modern English. We use a by phrase to indicate it. So, for example, I was bitten by a dog. By a dog is, is a prepositional phrase that does the job of the instrumental case. Well, in Sanskrit, the instrumental case still exists. It has been maintained from Proto-Indo-European. And all of this is to say that the instrumental case of aham, or I am, is maya, meaning by me. And while I can't say with with any authority, because I'm not a linguist in Sanskrit or a linguist at all, I just am a bit of a language geek, but it strikes me as being interesting that the word for illusion is also the same word that means by me. That is, the archetypal illusion is complete, discrete agency within oneself. I wonder whether there is an etymological connection between the two. This is something that, oddly, I do sometimes sit around thinking about, and even before lockdown. Anyways, I guess that's enough of a digression. What I really wanted to get at, and I guess what I really wanted to round out with for our understanding of the Diamond Sutra itself, is the notion that the discrete self, the discrete being, the discrete human being, is an illusion. And from this point of view, I think we can actually have a very interesting reading of ourselves and of the notion of the post-human and the figure of the cyborg. I will just leave you with that for now, as I've actually, as usual for me, taken a little longer to say all this than I'd really intended to. I hope you find it useful. I hope you find it interesting. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. And of course, as always, if you'd like to reach me, I'm at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com, eclectichumanist on Facebook, and at echumanist on Twitter. If you're enjoying these talks, please feel free to share them. And of course, as anybody putting something up on a social platform, I'm almost obliged to say, please hit like and subscribe anywhere that happens to be an option. For now, I'll simply wish you all a peaceful rest of your week. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with me. Until next time, be kind to each other.